0: Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. And welcome to our C-SPAN audience as well. My name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute. And the panel we've convened for this afternoon is, I believe, an especially uh, timely conversation. The subject is, which poses the bigger threat to U.S. national security, Iran, or non-state Sunni extremism? Um, We are conducting this panel, of course, in the context of a number of different things that are moving on the ground in the Middle East, um, most recently, there was the war in Gaza um, where various uh, Palestinian factions backed by Iran fought a traditional u s ally uh, right now, the uh, Obama administration is waging a limited campaign against ISIS in Iraq the um, Iraqis have named a new prime minister under Iranian influence, as most of politics are being conducted under Iraq these days. And these are just a few of the things that we'll touch on this afternoon. Um, We'll go for about, I guess, an hour and 15, an hour and 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll open up um, the floor to some of your questions. In the meantime, I wanted to introduce the panelists here. Um, Immediately to my left is Michael Duran a senior fellow at Brookings Institution's Center for Middle East Policy, where he specializes in Middle East security issues. He has held several academic positions and has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and Senior Director at the National Security Council under the George W. Bush administration. To his left is my colleague here at Hudson, Halel Fratkin, a senior fellow with Hudson, where he directs the Center on Islam, Democracy, and the Future of the Muslim World, and co-edits Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. His articles have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, World Affairs, The Journal of Democracy, Commentary, and The Weekly Standard, among other publications. To his left, Brian Katulis, who's been on panels here before. I welcome him back to Hudson. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on the Middle East and North Africa, and is co-author of The Prosperity Agenda, What the World Wants from America and What We Need in Return. Uh, with that, I'm going to commence and I'm going to ask my colleague immediately to my left, Michael Duran, to uh, begin with his short introduction and then we'll, we'll go in order along like that.
1: Thank you, Lee. Uh, it's great to be here at Hudson. I'd like to thank you, thank Hudson and uh, the audience here and, at C- and in, the, uh, in the C-SPAN audience. Um, my simple answer to the question, which... Threat is the greater strategic threat uh, is Iran, um, but before I go into into my thinking, um, let me describe what I believe to be the Obama administration's answer to that question. Because I believe, although they have the the question hasn't been put to them and they haven't answered <coughs> it, um, and I don't think they would like to have to answer the question, I think it's pretty clear that the Obama administration regards ISIS as uh, uh, as the as the primary threat, um, or Sunni uh, Sunni jihadism writ writ large, uh, until the Obama administration, since the Iranian Revolution, uh, I think every other president regarded countering Iran in the region as a vital U.S. as a vital U.S. interest, and the Obama administration continues to pay lip service to countering Iran in the region. Um, as a uh, As a goal, but it 's really hard to point to any initiative that the administration has taken um, that you could say is really designed to counter uh, uh, iran and in, and in particular, we had this uh, very significant intervention in the Syrian civil War by Iran and by iran 's proxies um, that that elicited almost no response and I, I would say basically no response from the um, from from the United States, um, and that was a I think that was the first clear sign we had um, that the Obama administration uh, no longer regarded carrying Iran as a as, as really as a uh, as, as a vital interest. And I think if you look across the region, um, in in every or every major arena, you'll see increasingly the U.S. and Iran are marching in parallel. Uh, the most <coughs> recent example being the the new prime minister in Iraq was welcomed both by the United States and by um, and by Iran. The uh, s- the supporters of the administration will say, "Well, it just happens that the United States and Iran have the same interests and are, are walking in parallel like this." Uh, I, I personally don't believe that to be the case. I think that this is uh, there's a, a conscious effort to uh, accommodate Iran, um, to arrive at a modus vivendi. Um, uh, a- and the primary reason for that is the notion that ISIS is the, is the threat. We have this problem of jihadistan now from, from Baghdad to Aleppo or Baghdad to Damascus. Uh, a- and um, the administration's attitude, I think, um, is much the same. Its, its attitude in private is, is much the same as what we've seen from uh, uh, Ambassador Pickering and Ambassador Lures and Crocker, who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, many of you saw, which said that w- we have to band together with all of, the like-minded, uh, uh, all of the like-minded states in the region that are hostile to ISIS, Iran uh, being um, first and foremost among them, and so we should come to an accommodation with them. We heard the same thing from uh, Admiral Stavridis. Uh, uh, writing in Huffington Post recently, uh, expressing what I'm sure is a very uh, uh, a very prevalent view in the in the Defense Department, um, and we hear it from uh, many other uh, uh, many other significant figures in the policy world, Les Gelb, um, uh, and so on. That's how I think that they they see the the region. Um, personally, I think that this puts them in, in a, a very contradictory position. Um, let's just say, for the sake of discussion, that our our number one goal at the moment is to counter ISIS. Um, so the administration's uh, answer to that is, well, what we need is a change of government, a change of, of, of prime minister in, uh, in, in Iraq to, to have a, a government that is more inclusive of Sunnis so that we can begin to separate out the Sunnis, uh, the, the Sunni tribes, in Iraq, from from uh, from ISIS, uh, because a lot of what the, the, uh, 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 one of the reasons why ISIS has been able to take over uh, the Sunni Arab portions of, of, of Iraq is because it is uh, it is benefiting from the tacit support of the, the tribe. So we have to drive a wedge, and in order to do that, we need a we need an Iranian an, an Iraqi government that is more accommodating to Sunni desires um, more more broadly. Um, I agree with that. Analysis in general terms, uh, but not in the specifics. We're going to need much more than just a change of uh, a change of the prime minister. You have to change the whole structure of the security services in Iraq, which have become increasingly Shi'ified over time. And you have to change the alignment between the the, the Iraqi government and Iran, because the tribesmen uh, the the tribesmen in Iraq uh, believe that they that they are being targeted by. A proxy of Iran in the form of the, uh, the the form of the Iraqi government. We learned how to do this during the surge, uh, and we learned what it takes. It takes uh, uh, it takes a significant U.S. security commitment. Uh, it takes relationships, direct relationships with the tribesmen uh, on the ground. We have to offer them security, and we have to offer them a path, a political path forward um, that will uh, that will allow them to believe that if they go against ISIS somebody will have their back. And I, I just don't believe that the Iraqi government under, this, uh, under any prime minister, as, as it is currently constituted, is, gonna, is going to um, succeed in that. But then we have the second problem, which is Syria. And the president, uh, the president said recently, um, when, when asked whether he should have supported the Syrian opposition, uh, he said uh, that the, the criticism of his policy is horseshit. Uh, which I take to be a rather strong statement uh, that he's not about to reverse course on, in in Syria. Uh, in Syria, we need exactly the same thing that he's describing in in, in Iraq. We need a, uh, a a we need a political horizon for the Sunnis of Syria. And until the until the Sunnis of Syria have that, there's going to be no way to there's going to be no way to disconnect them from the uh, the uh, the the most extreme uh, jihadis but the president's attitude suggests that he's not about to do anything uh, we're not about to have a kind of uh, uh, uh anbar awakening uh, attitude toward uh, or policy toward toward Syria uh, as long as we don't as long as we are treating Iraq and Syria as separate and hermetically sealed problems we're not gonna solve the problem because it's now a unified problem from uh, from Baghdad to uh, to Aleppo we have to have a whole, uh, uh, a whole of jihadistan strategy, uh, which means which means building uh, which means basically an Anbar Awakening style movement in Syria and in Iraq, designed to pull the the the, the Sunnis away from the uh, the jihadis. And it, until the, the president approaches it, and that uh, it approaches it, in that um, in that paradigm, I think our, our policy is is destined to fail. Or it, it becomes what it actually is. And this is what, what, what hasn't been admitted, and, and I'll stop here. The policy we have at the moment is an unstated policy of containing jihadistan by aligning ourselves with Iran and Assad. Uh, that's not the, like I say, it's not what we say in public, but that's what we're doing. We're just trying to put a, we're just trying to put a ring around this thing uh, and, and hold it in place. Um, and I think that's going to be a very, very big failure.
0: Thanks, Mike. That's terrific. Um, and uh, there's a lot to to come back to shortly. In the meantime, Halal, if, uh, if if you would uh, please
2: sure. give your introduction. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks very much, Lee, and thanks for the audience and and uh, my fellow uh, panelists. Um, first, um, I would I want to start by agreeing with Mike. Um, I think Iran is the greatest strategic threat. Although, uh, I think one has to say that um, both uh, threats are. Um, considerable um, that both the Islamic state and the Islamic Republic of Iran are fanatic uh, determined uh, enemies uh, mostly they uh, are, are enemies to one another but uh, the one thing they can agree on uh, is that we are the enemy um, so there's first of all that is there is there are, practically speaking, may be something to choose between them in the short term, but um, not uh, or not in, in general terms. And second, I also agree with Mike that um, the uh, this is not the conclusion of the administration, uh, which uh, is inclining more and more to think that the Islamic State is the greater enemy and that there is uh, some kind of alliance to be formed, whether it's just um, de facto or even uh, uh, more managed between us and Iran. Um, some of this comes, I think, from um, something that has been characteristic of the administration for a very long I'm, time. I'm sorry, Halal, could you just
0: speak up a little more in the microphone? Just thanks.
2: Some of this is um, a result of what has been characteristic of, uh, or the several characteristics of the administration's policy for a very long time. First of all, has been the privileging of the issue of terrorism. The president often lists a variety of national security interests that we might have, um, uh, defense of of the Gulf and so on and so forth. But if you look at any one of his statements, the vast majority of the statement is devoted to the terrorism issue. And this is, he's come back to this over and over again, his one real responsibility is to protect the United States from a 9-11 type attack or other forms of, uh, other expressions of terrorism. So the whole policy has been built on uh, for a long, long time, on uh, 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 prioritizing terrorism and and addressing it, the only problem with that uh, 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 policy has been that it is now a failure. Um, uh, that the situation we face with the Islamic State is much, much worse, as administration sure. officials now more or less tacitly admit than was the case at, uh, at uh, uh, with Al Qaeda prior to 9/11. So uh, in a way, they have to privilege that. They have to uh, focus on that because this is th- this the p- the administration's policy legacy stands or fall with with whether they have addressed that. Um, the other complication, the other factor in in the approach of the administration has been this notion that it was stated with particular clarity in the interview that uh, the president gave with- to Tom Friedman uh, that he looks to a future in which. Um, the various parties to conflicts, uh, approach it with the, um, under the rubric, no victor, no vanquished. That there is a kind of um, solution to be had on the horizon in which there, uh, inevitably there are conflicts, but the conflicts can be um, managed if everyone comes to understand that there are uh, lose-lose situations and win-win situations. Um, now and he's put this in different ways and uh, some of this was very helpfully elaborated by Mike in a, in a piece he recently wrote uh, he can give you the citation um, this notion that there's an equilibrium to be had in the region um, and that the equilibri- equilibrium has to be reached by the various parties to it um, that means among other things that we um, are, have to be our own perspective perspectives is more con- accommodating to our enemies or former enemies and less accommodating to uh, our friends. And we've seen this actually expressed in a variety of ways uh, over time, most recently in the Gaza war where uh, p- practically speaking no one in the region could figure out what we were trying to do by uh, inviting Gutter and Turkey in as mediators in, in, the, in, the, in the struggle. And several people described uh, us as having discovered a new form of Middle Eastern statecraft, never before heard of, in which uh, one punishes one's friends and rewards one's enemies. Uh, but that follows if you're uh, if you're looking for a situation in which, or I believe there's a situation to be had or a solution to be had, which involves this kind of e- equilibrium and compromise. Now, the last thing I want to say is that. Uh, the President, especially several of his advisors, uh, Ben Rhodes in particular, often talk about having the long view that what they you know whatever may be the the bumps on the road, they have a, a really clear and novel view of and, and much better view of where the region should could wind up should wind up and um, and that one um, you know they' they're, they're Want to stick with that? But the, the very fact that the question you've posed as the question of this panel suggests that is a very, very dubious proposition. That what we what we can see is a tremendous mess, an enormous mess, um, in which uh, we find ourselves faced with an. Uh, even if we, we agree that the Islamic State is the first priority, it has grown to be an enormous a problem um, which the president himself is not saying that we have much to do uh, against in the near term. Uh, what we really need to do right now is hold the line. Um, and I will finish by saying this, there's a particular way in which the, the policy has become obviously uh, dubious uh, even to uh, the administration and that has to do with the Kurds. Um, It turns out, I think, uh, as we're seeing over the last week, that the one thing we actually can do just at the moment, if we mean to stop the Islamic State, is arm the Kurds. Something we have resisted um, for months, for years, and even resisted a month ago when the Kurds, uh, a high-level Kurdish representation delegation was here to request heavy arms because they anticipated having to go up against the Islamic State, which would be uh, heavily armed. At that time, I think it was uh, just after the 4th of July, the president and his advisors said no. Now it looks like we and practically everyone else will wind up begging the Kurds to take our arms. I noticed today the French want to give them arms. The British want to give them arms. Even the Germans want to give them not arms but non lethal uh, military material. So um, that, I think, shows uh, evidently a, p- a failure in the policy, but also points in something like a direction for the, in the short term that our, uh, one of our principal assets right now in the region is the Kurds, who are not friends, who were uh, not enemies, but friends, that we may really need to go back to a policy in which we support friends. And to the extent possible, punish enemies.
0: Halal, thanks very much, um, Brian. If you would, uh, if you would, uh, kick off our uh, the, the our our first round here.
3: Great, um, and it's really great to be here uh, with with Michael and Halal uh, and Lee. Thanks for inviting me back here uh, for what I think will be a very interesting discussion. Um, first, at the outset, I wanted to make points. One, I want to respond to the question that is framing our discussion. (coughs) Second, offer a diagnosis of what's going on in the region. Um, And then third, maybe suggest some points about where we go uh, from here as a country. And I want to highlight, you know, as a country and together, uh, because I think that's important. And obviously we'll talk about President Obama and the Obama Administration, but I think what we're seeing in the Middle East requires uh, a much more unified national response. Uh, that I think we've seen at least for the last decade. And our own sort of divisions sometimes hinder our ability to deal strategically uh, with these challenges. First, to the question of what's a greater threat is it Iran or the non state Sunni jihadists? Uh, when Lee asked me about this question earlier this summer, I, I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to punt uh, because I see both of these as possibly representing. <laughs> Tremendous threats. And in fact, you, you need only go back a few years when our military and our intelligence officials uh, found evidence that some elements in Iran were supporting some elements of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So uh, there is and has been instances of what I would uh, classify as tactical cooperation between these entities. I want to be measured here, too, because uh, when we use uh, labels or, or, or talk about Iran as a monolithic entity, I think that's incorrect. I think there are many different strands within mm-hmm. Iran, and I've, as we've seen in our most recent history, sometimes some elements uh, uh, inside the Iranian power structure will work with us on certain issues, like Afghanistan <laughs> or uh, other places. There's has been already under President Bush, and I think uh, right now, today, tactical uh, cooperation in a certain sense. If not planned, but just as a matter of happenstance and change in the region. But that all said, my 1st the reason why I refuse to answer the question is I actually think, uh, when you asked me that question, I actually went back to my old college tex- textbooks. I was studied at Villanova University, and uh, the Augustans were quite good, and uh, talked about or read about the, the concept of evil, <laughs> 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 which, which I actually think is very important uh, to inform the moral values, architecture of how we approach these problems. I don't think we should put it in our rhetoric forefront, uh, but I think we should think about this. Because what you see what's happening in Syria, what the Islamic State is doing uh, to different uh, groups, uh, members of their own faith, uh, religious minorities especially, it's evil. When you see what the Iranian regime has done to repress uh, the voices of individuals, it is evil. But I, I'm a pragmatist who a, a foreign policy analyst. We need to deal with these challenges Um, um, with that moral framework in mind, but then practically move forward, which is the second point. And I think I hope this is useful, but we did a report recently, and it's based on some extensive on-the-ground research throughout the Middle East. And the report is available over there, at least a few copies. For those of you watching on TV, um, it's on the American Progress website. And I I think the diagnosis, uh, uh, trying to be more clinical, as opposed to just talking about the moral challenge, because there is a moral challenge, is that the Middle East, uh, at least for the last three years and perhaps longer, has been, a, been in a period of uh, fragmentation and fracturing, uh, an intense competition for power amongst the key stakeholders within the region. Um, it, we've been a factor in that, uh, but I think our policy debates necessarily overweight how much we matter. Sometimes I think if, if, if an asteroid hit a planet 100 million light years away from here, uh, some on the right would blame President Obama for that, and some on the left would say it was because of U.S. imperialism. Um, things happen in the region in part because of demographic, social, and political changes. Our, our actions matter. Um, it does quite a lot. But I think right now what we've seen, especially since the rise of the Arab uprisings, has been this multifaceted competition for influence, first within countries. Uh, Uh, who's actually leading these countries, whether it's Egypt or Tunisia. Um, Syria is the most vicious point. Second, it's sectarian. It's Shia versus Sunni, uh, Saudi Arabia versus Iran and their proxies, if you will. And then there's a third layer, which is often not recognized, but I think comes deeply into play in the Syrian opposition, is the intra-Sunni fight uh, between Saudi Arabia on the one hand uh, and perhaps the UAE and Turkey and Qatar on the other hand. And I know that sounds like a complicated uh, uh, sort of way of looking at it, but I actually think that's where the region is at. And in a sense, many in the region have bitten the apple, and they see like gods. Um, they, they are exercising far greater influence uh, over their own region and affairs. And if there's a broader trend, it's that those countries that have more resources, that are wealthier, that are less internally divided, are playing out their battles in their own proxy wars in the region. We've been, large, uh, by and large, in part, I think, incidental and a bystander to this. And I would argue, and I think Michael and others will argue against me, but I think also when we were in the region with 170,000 troops, um, that presence matters, but the politics and the shaping of power dynamics, which I think some of our most deaf diplomats have helped guide and shape, and I think we're seeing that go on right now inside of Iraq, uh... is is an important part of this struggle of trying to figure out where do we intervene uh... how do we actually use our power in a way so that it doesn't lead to overreach uh... overreaction or as i think we have right now a bit of underreach in this administration <coughs> which leads to the last point and I'll, I'll close here of what do we do about this just some uh... uh... starting thoughts because i hope this is a, a broader conversation mm-hmm. to deepen all of our uh, and, and stimulate our thinking <coughs> First. Um, The other challenge I had with your question, Lee, was that it framed things very much in a threat-based scenario, and I I think that's important, but I also think that our strategic thinking often goes down that path without thinking about what are the opportunities? What do we actually want to see achieve? And And I think this tactical crisis management reactive mode that we've seen on policy under President Obama, but quite frankly also certain aspects of this under the Bush administration when it walked away from its own freedom agenda or its own doctrines uh, on paper um, is driven by that. That this tactical crisis management is driven by, again, real threats, but if we're not defining what it is we actually want to achieve in the long run, and I think it is a long battle, um, we need to think about what what sort of Middle East do we want to see 20 or 30 years from now. Moving from that point, I think we, 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 we have to support, and this is where I might disagree with how Hillel characterizes the current policy stance, but I do think it should be you got to support your friends first, your most reliable and capable partners. <laughs> and we'll get into Gaza and Israel and the various what I think are largely tactical questions about this dispute between Obama and, and, and Bibi Netanyahu, um, because I think there's a strong enduring strategic relationship there. But I think at bare minimum, our friends in the region now are Israel, uh, Jordan. Uh, the Kurds uh, and, and and a few others, perhaps on some days I mean Egypt, <laughs> Egypt we have to get to because it is a center of gravity, and I fear that it 's slipped away from our strategic discussions and it 's a complicated uh, discussion, and we need to stay engaged there, but at bare minimum, helping our friends help themselves, um, and I think that 's what President Obama has done with the Kurds, and I hope it 's a step in the right direction I think also, for those who are very glum and pe- pessimistic about Iraq, and I was a critic of the war, I was also one of those left advocates of we should get out uh, militarily, but I was also saying we should stay engaged diplomatically and politically. The good thing about Iraq today in the central government is it's got politics. Uh, dysfunctional though they be, it is not the scenario that you have across the border in Syria, w- which I think, and I hope, hopefully, we'll get into this. I think we will with Michael's comments and others on the Syrian opposition. You have an ability, uh, uh, you you know, something that did not exist certainly under Saddam Hussein and for much of the period when we were there, um, there is politics. And I think this is one good thing. And and I think what President Obama has tried to do quite correctly inside of Iraq in response to the ISIS rise, (laughs) belatedly I would say, is get others to take responsibility for their own affairs. And as we see, as the Kurds see, when they're willing to fight, when the Peshmerga are willing to go on the ground – With their grit and determination, we will have their back. I think quite understandably, President Obama and many, when they saw the scenarios in Mosul, where Iraqi security forces strip off their uniforms, hand over the weapons that U.S. taxpayers give to them, there's a hesitation to offer support there. Because after $20 billion plus, you want to wonder, you you might wonder, you know, can we fight more for our country than the the, the people of that country? So – I think the real debate here, and we get sort of in the sloganarian rhetorical debate, and I think even the, the thing between President Obama and Secretary Clinton, there was a bit of, if you read carefully what people were saying, there's a much more textured understanding of what's going on here. The real debate is actually not engagement versus uh, disengagement. The U.S., I think, is engaged. It's the right – what's the right way to calibrate that engagement? Who are the partners when we get into Syria that we, we need to work with? Because I think – you know, and, and, and again, I think some of the things Michael, Halal, and I may, may disagree. I, I don't see yet President Obama going down this path that uh, Ryan Crocker or, or uh, others put in their op ed. Uh, I, I see something perhaps much more, something that's much more muddled than that. Uh, it's not a strategic choice between the two. It is, and this is where we'll, are all close, I, I don't think how they, they're operating, this, this is where I'll close, is that I, I think they pragmatically see that the United States, for all of the talk of us disengaging, um, we still have a wider network of partners in the region. Uh, right now it includes uh, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, obviously Israel, uh, Qatar. Turkey's a NATO ally. Egypt, uh, for the most part, they're still trying to work with. No other country has this diversity of relationships. I see the uh, attempts with Iran as a bit more of a tactical attempt to deal with one aspect of the relationship, but I don't see us going in the tank And even if there is a nuclear deal, which I think there are low odds of there being a nuclear deal, I I, I see this very sort of hedged, multifaceted approach. Uh, Cautious, um, I think, has its downsides. It also has uh, some wisdom to it, too. And I think the real debate uh, is how do we actually move forward? How do we prioritize in the region? Uh, in in a region that's actually in turmoil? How do you set your national security priorities? And then how do you implement a strategy that takes into account that that second factor I talked about, actors actually uh, um, advancing their own strategies of influence, which I think is quite different than what we saw sort of in the old uh, Arab Cold War between Arab nationalism and monarchies.
0: Thanks very much, Brian. That's terrific. And uh, I'm especially happy if the subject of the panel sent you back to Augustine. That's fantastic. And I hope that many other people in the audience, including C-SPAN as well, will also return to Augustine and read it for the first time. I wanted to defend a bit also the, um, the subject of the panel because actually I think the administration, or in particular the president, has, has put it um, like this in various interviews uh, with both Jeffrey Goldberg And uh, in a David Remnick profile, and I believe I've made this case from the same stage uh, a couple times in the past. And the case I'll make is, I think the way the president understands the fundamental issue is not mad. I think it's very sound. I don't agree with it, but I think it's very sound. And the way I'll lay it out is this. The Islamic Republic of Iran, while extremely problematic, while we regret and are against their support for terrorism and their own terrorist activities – They are nonetheless a state. They are therefore rational. They are susceptible to the various instruments of statecraft, be that uh, diplomatic engagement, be that uh, deterrence and containment, or finally, uh, military operations if necessary. Places like, or or rather, uh, organizations like ISIS, because they do not have, or they are somewhat of a state now. They're becoming more and more of a state. Um, But al-Qaeda, because these organizations are not states. There are not capitals. They cannot be struck like this. They do not have investments across the world. I believe that the administration perceives that therefore these places are a, uh, these organizations are a bigger concern. And there are fewer, uh, fewer resources or instruments available to to deal with them. So that's why I think, and I think there actually has been a real choice. I, I don't believe that the administration or the president believes that Iran is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful help, helpful, re- reliable partner around the region. Um, but as Mike was saying before, I do believe that there are certain correspondences that we're seeing, uh, that we're seeing played out right now. And Mike, actually, if, I, if we can come back to this a little bit, when you were saying – I think you said something like, de facto, this is the sort of thing that we're seeing happening. It's, it's not an announced policy. It's not a stated policy. And it's not because the President uh, believes the Iranians, uh, the regime, the clerical regime, is a bunch of good actors, but because of the way that the policies are moving. So I'm going to ask you to fill that out a bit.
1: Thanks. Uh, I, uh, um, I think Brian could possibly be right that um, what, we're, what we're witnessing in the uh, region, in all the different arenas, is just a lot of ad hocery that the really the big strategic decision that the Obama administration made uh, was the one that it made early on, and that was to keep the region at arm's length. It's possible. I, I actually don't believe it. I, I believe that the President has consciously decided to align with Iran, uh, but he knows that he cannot publicly state that policy because it will uh, it's politically, uh, it's politically uh, untenable um, here domestically. But that—that's what he's doing. But it's possible. I—I—we I, don't have a totally, we don't have a smoking gun. We do have some statements from the president himself, um, but it doesn't matter because it—it it amounts to being the same policy anyway. In—in um, in this way, there's a there's a fundamental divide in the region, and the fundamental divide is between the Iranian alliance and um, a, and and our traditional friends. The Iranian alliance being Iran, Syria. Hezbollah and Hamas. Hamas was a little bit problematic for a while, but it seems to be back in the in the fold. Uh, you can add to that now. The uh, you can add to that now. Maliki's Iraq, pretty much a satellite of Iran, um, and the, uh, Iran has other little bit uh, other little players, proxies that it has built up around the uh, around the region, <clears throat> and then everybody else. They operate as an alliance. They they've they uh, pursue their interests aggressively. Where, uh, wherever they are. We see the way they supported Assad, even in his darkest, uh, uh, in his darkest days. I guarantee you that Qasem Soleimani never said to, uh, uh, n- never said to Ali Khamenei, uh, you know, use of force is problematic. It just, uh, <laughs> we have a, a heavy footprint. It just mm-hmm. creates antibodies to us, and therefore we should really hang back. Well, there, n- the kinds of debates that we have here in Washington all the time, they didn't have. They saw, their, they saw their friend in trouble, and they went in and, uh, and supported him. And that, has created, that creates a huge divide in the region between, uh, between their guys and those who were our guys. But we have decided n- we're no longer going no to look at the region that way for whatever reason, whether it's a conscious decision or just this ad hocery. We're no longer going to test every arena and say, how do we support our guys against, uh, uh, against their guys? Um, so what that means is we leave our guys out on the battlefield alone and isolated. Um, you know, Karl Marx – I always like to quote Karl Marx. Karl, uh, Karl, Karl Marx uh, talked, about, uh, talked about peasants as a sack of potatoes, um, saying that, you know, peasants have – as a class, they have an interest, a class interest. But because of the divisions between them, they're incapable of operating as a, um, a, as, a, as a class. So there are a sack of potatoes. The minute you open up the sack, the potatoes all go in, in different, in, in different uh, directions. Our allies in the Middle East are a sack of potatoes. Uh, they, uh, they are left on their own. They cannot come together. The Saudis and the Israelis share almost identical strategic uh, interests now. We know that. We're not going to get a Saudi and Saudi-Iranian, Saudi-Israeli alliance to counter Iran. They will, they will coordinate to a certain extent in some arenas, like in Gaza, we've seen it, and so on. But they're not going to come together and uh, and uh, work to counter Iran in Syria or in Iraq or 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 elsewhere. It's the job of the United States to organize its allies, to assign roles and missions, to make sure all the oars are moving in the same direction. Um, and then when we do that, when we, when we put together our side against the other side, we can get a very significant strategic impact. If we don't play that role, if we renounce it, or even if we don't renounce it, we just forget that we ever did play that role, we've, we, cede the, we cede it to the other side, which is continuing to look at the region as a zero-sum game and is pursuing its interests uh, uh, aggressively. To put it another way, and then I'll, I'll stop, look, we can't we can't... It is very striking that every major Obama initiative in the Middle East has failed. And I say everyone, the, the, the administration would say, well, the nuclear, the Iranian nuclear negotiations have not yet failed. I say, no, they failed. We just don't want to call them a failure, uh, a, a failure yet. But even if I give you that, everything other than the, the, than the Iranian nuclear deal has, um, has failed. Why? We don't have allies that are going to support us. If we look at each at each problem, independent from everyone, every other problem, without reference to the pattern of power in the region, without reference to the security dilemmas that our allies face as they understand them, (laughs) then when we come up with solutions, like we did in Gaza recently, um, uh, that that has nothing to do with the way the players on the ground are defining their their, their problem, nobody's going to follow us. We can't achieve anything in the region of significance if we don't do it together with our partners, and our partners are not going to cooperate with us unless we take on board, to a certain extent, their perception of their security dilemma. That doesn't mean that we have to become, uh, that we have to become, that the, that the tail wags the dog. It just means we have to, we have to accept the region's understanding of itself or the, or the player's understanding of itself to a certain extent, and we have to understand that the, the biggest card that we have to play is our military? It's security, security assistance. That doesn't mean we have to have a massive Iraq-style invasion uh, uh, again. Obviously, the American public doesn't want that. But we have to understand that our number one goal is to provide security to our uh, to our partners, accepting how they understand the game.
0: Well, um, thank you, Mike. Brian, we spoke about this a little bit before, yeah. and I just wanted just uh, to transition from Mike's statement. Uh, we were talking about the administration's campaign against ISIS, and you, you had some thoughts about that. I wonder if we can – I wonder if you want to talk about that at well, all. Well,
3: look, we um, – as a, just an analyst at a think tank, um, uh, we've been looking at these events carefully, this one report I mentioned. But we, we put out something also in mid-June after the blitzkrieg by ISIS into Mosul, which should have been a wake-up call, and I think it has been uh, a wake-up call uh, for the United States and the region. and we, Our paper essentially argued that we need to work with partners in the region. We need to work uh, with the Iraqis to respond to this in an inclusive, national way. But it also ended with the note that we may need to conduct airstrikes uh, ourselves and may not wait. We, we posited that the dysfunction within Iraqi politics um, and the slow process, uh, which again, there's politics, it may not move as quickly enough as the security threats might. And this, I think, was the uh, debate inside the administration. We, we kind of put it out there, and given that we're a center-left organization, we were hit by people for saying that. Um, we've had last week this confluence of events where there was action, uh, I think necessary action, um, and I think a step in the right direction at the same time the Iraqis were making a step in their politics, uh, moving – they had already had a president and a new Speaker of Parliament and now moving, we hope, towards a prime ministership. Um, what we put in that paper as well was this problem of Syria, and perhaps we'll go down this path okay. on Syria, is that – Quite obviously, the wake-up call, and I think Michael said this, I've written this before, this summer, is that these two problems, uh, which I think until earlier this summer have been stovepiped inside the administration, but increasingly in the last few weeks, the different people working on the different aspects, um, the problems have merged. The problem set has merged. And um, I do think what the United States and President Obama has been doing, he should get credit for on the Iraqi side. Uh, I actually think it's quite... As, as difficult as the situation inside of Iraq is, he's working with a foundation that was built by the previous administration, notwithstanding the dispute about the initial war in 2003, and notwithstanding that that war ended a policy of dual containment of Iraq and Iran, and I think contributed to the problems that we see today. All of that's in the past. We are where we are now. <coughs> Work with what you've got. And I think um, there's the makings of what is the pathway look forward, especially if the Iraqi leadership does build this inclusive response in Baghdad. Perhaps there's more to come there. My main point, though, is that it's incomplete. Because the threats, if you hit them inside of of northwestern Iraq and western Iraq, and have uh, not only uh, as your ground force the Peshmerga, or perhaps some of the Iraqi security forces, the Sunni tribes, the threats will migrate and have across the border, back and forth. And I actually don't, I can't pretend to have uh, the answer to this. I, m- maybe Michael or Hillel will. I mean, I think we could also go back to what could have been done in the last couple of years, and I think that's a legitimate debate. I'm more interested in what you do now. We just finished a, a, about a month on the ground in Turkey, uh, Lebanon, Jordan. We have a report coming out on the Syrian opposition. Um, and we're really struggling with this question. And I think part of it is it may have been easier in 2012 or 2013, or maybe not, as you know, Secretary Clinton and others have, have really, I think, hedged. Nobody really knows. Um, But, you know, connecting it back to maybe two things Michael said. One, look, no matter what the U.S. did or didn't do in Syria the last couple of years, we are where we are right now, so let's figure out how we can actually build a foothold. I know you had some proposals in your article in Foreign Affairs. Um, I think this administration, given the wake-up call of the summer, might be entertaining more of this. They see the problem that I identified, that you can't just work in Iraq and then you know, hit a hammer in Iraq against no anvil that exists in, in Syria. You need to squeeze this threat. Um, and in Iraq, again, we have partners on the ground willing to do this. I think we might have some in Syria, but they're damned weak right yeah. now. Um, they're, they're, they're beaten down by, I think, a very aggressive and dangerous not only security threat, but an ideological threat uh, 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 to the region. So I think that's that's one point. Second thing, and this is a little bit away from Syria, but I think related to Iran and Lee. uh, Both you and Michael mentioned this again. I I think it's important to do analysis not only on what the statements say, what Ben Rhodes or President Obama says in an interview to Jeffrey Goldberg, but I think actions matter quite a lot too. And and in this case, you look at what both the Bush administration and President Obama have done with the GCC states uh, with security assistance, unprecedented and actually rivalling anything that we've given, and it's not even assistance, it's sales, and it is some training and cooperation, uh, uh, upwards of $100 billion. And we talked about this on the Saudi panel, too. And I think that's wise. That's largely focused on the actions of containing Iran and the security threat um, that they pose. So in in a sense, actions uh, speak louder than words there. And what worries me is I want to drive, because to have strategy, you need to actually have the conception of our friends, good guys, bad guys. And I, I think that's right, uh, Mike. Um, what I worry about is when you look at some of these states, uh, like Saudi Arabia, um, and you know it very well, too, is that it has many different strands. I think on balance, they are a traditional ally. But you also look at what they funded in terms of education, what they're funding even in our mosques here, uh, private financiers. You look also at that loss period in the Syrian opposition um, when – the, the non-strike event of about a year ago or so. Uh, it led to certain actions by Saudi officials that I think contributed in certain ways to the problem that we have right now inside of Syria. So again, I, I'm, I'm introducing more nuance than perhaps is acceptable <laughs> in strategy. Oh um, nuance no, is good. Yeah, That's but, it, but it's, a, it's a region where it's not so clear. Like, it's clear to me that Israel, Jordan, um, they're, they're reliable and capable allies. It's clear to me that the Kurds as well um, and yes, we probably, we do need to make a decision. My main point to answer your question is I think we've made some decisions on Iraq. I think this administration still hasn't clarified what the heck it wants to do with its proposed 500 million at the end of June for the Syrian opposition. Is that anti-Daesh? Is that anti-Assad? Is it both? If so, then what's your strategy here?
0: Um, I want Thanks, Brian. I want to come back to Syria shortly, but in the meantime I wanted to, again, use what you were talking about to transition to Hillel because. Uh, One of the things that we were talking about, and I believe you mentioned, uh, was the no victor, no vanquished formula, um, which suggests, Brian, I entirely agree with you that a lot of our allies, and as we've known for a while, a lot of our regional allies are problematic, um, to say the least. Some of them, certainly, many of them certainly not as reliable as Israel, or maybe the Kurds will turn out to be, or the Jordanians. Um, But it's peculiar, the idea that we should be judging strategy or policy in terms of I mean we have certain allies, we have certain horses we can ride in the region and that seems to be about it. So the no victor, no vanquished formula, which uh, uh, another colleague of ours was sort of tying it back to Lebanon. This is kind of where this, this formula comes from, no victor, no vanquished. Um, why is the United States perceiving it that way instead of in terms of allies we can ride to ensure that we win in various places across the region – including most recently in Gaza. So Halal, this is something we talked about before, and I'm, if you could talk about this a bit.
2: Yeah, but I, uh, frankly, I, I w- and I will include that okay. in, my, in my remarks, but I, but it, it seems to me uh, ap- aprop- uh, apropos to uh, engage what Brian um, has just said. Um, first of all, I, w- I wanted to, s- to say earlier that I, I think uh, uh, your revival of the word evil is entirely appropriate, and it, it's even coming out of a, a diplomatic mouths these days. I saw Ryan Crocker uh, use it the, the other day. And it doesn't, and the use, of, I want to say also, the use of it doesn't uh, make uh, it impossible to um, uh, engage in practical calculations about, among other things, lesser evils. Um, uh, there are probably people in the audience who will correct me if I get this wrong, but I, I think it is the case that at the time um, when uh, Nazi Germany invaded um, the Soviet Union in uh, June 1941. Um, heretofore uh, the British government had regarded, of course, the Soviet Union was an enemy, and also uh, its Soviet regime was evil. Uh, but when asked about what the response of the British government was, I believe Churchill said that um, if uh, Hitler decided to invade hell, he would try to find some kind words to say about the devil. Okay. and uh, that one can take that stance. The question is whether it, it's entirely appropriate in these circumstances. Um, another point you made was, you know, where we want the region to be. I, I guess it's also, you know, people who, are at, who study the region have come to be invested in where they think the region should be, but the question really is what the, our country's interests are mm-hmm. and what, what are those interests at this point and what conceivable future of the region could match up with them. And that's, I think, really the thing that needs to take place. Um, and, uh, but we are where we are, as you said. Um, it, it, it's, it is still useful, I think, to go over the past because, um, if there's still something to be learned from it. But, one thing, uh, but right now, you uh, bring us back to Syria. Um, let's not go over the... Uh, the past. Uh, And let's not go over the fight, the present fight between uh, President Obama and his former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Um, Where we are now is I think the last possible moment we can have an effect. Um, The Islamic State keeps making um, progress uh, in Syria at the expense of uh, all other groups uh, on its side. The the regime keeps making uh, progress. Most recently, uh, yesterday, it captured some more towns around Damascus. Damascus. So, in the within the next few months, maybe even shorter period of time, there will be only two sides in Syria, and neither of them will be anyone we can support. So, whatever has to happen is going to happen there. That could still be beneficial. Has to happen extremely rapidly. Um, to um, and and this brings me to a, you know sort of another thing about the way uh, you, you talked about nuance. And nuance is of course t- tremendously important, unless it it winds up allowing you to um, forget the forest for the trees. Yeah. I mean, you still have to grasp what it is that you you really want and what what's really out there, and um the president i don't I, you know th- there is a, a a claim made on behalf of the administration by the administration that it has a very careful and calibrated it's the word they use over and over again calibration. Well that calibration doesn't seem to be working so really one needs to have uh, if one means to be successful uh, a different approach you know when, when this could, this hand can play itself out and it will be final. As for the, the, the Gaza situation, it, it, um, I, I assume part of this discussion will go over the, the issues more generally, but th- there came a crucial moment in, in the Gaza war in which um, I wouldn't say that Israel had Hamas down and out, but it had it down. Uh, because, not only because of its military action, but because the Egyptians were uh, cooperating or even egging the Israelis on not to stop and not to give way in any way to uh, any other proposal regarding a ceasefire other than the ones that the Egyptians had offered. And the Egyptians had two interests in that. One was that it was their offer, (laughs) and the second was that it it, it it. did not yield on the embargo which they had imposed on Gaza. Uh, and, the report, uh, right. and then what did uh, our Secretary of State do? Um, well that didn't immediately produce an agreement uh, nor, she, nor was it expected to. Hamas turned that down. But it, but it then got a leg up or a lift up off the floor because the Secretary of State went off to gutter and Turkey and said well, you guys could talk. To, they don't want to, Hamas doesn't want to talk to Egypt. We have to talk to you. Well, that's, the that's you know, that was a, an extremely foolish thing. It was certainly foolish from the point of view of the Egyptians and the Israelis. It was foolish from our point of view. If, for example, Mike is right, that what you want to be doing is helping your friends um, uh, and supporting their, their interests. Unless you think that there's some enormously greater interest... That, that requires you to demur, and that that I think was um, it, it staggered everyone in the region, and for example, uh, one of the most remarkable things about that event was that the the day it came out that that was what, what had happened, the Israeli press was filled with attacks on on this proposal and but not only the proposal that that They've gone to Gutter and Turkey, which are enemies. The largest number of and the most vociferously hostile articles were by authors everyone knows are left-wing columnists in Israel. Uh, Ari Shavit, uh, Ravid, Nahum Barnea, all of them thought this is really taking leave of one's senses to go to, to Gutter and Turkey to manage this and abandon a position in which Egypt is is in alignment with Israel. That's That was remarkable.
0: Um, Mike, I'm going to ask for another little transition here, because um, Halal was talking about American interests. So in the framework, the general framework of the subject of the panel, I'm going to ask you, if you can, to state as boldly. And, and, and also, I do I really do want to get into Syria, and maybe you can use Syria to talk about this. But I'd like you to state as boldly as possible what are U.S. interests, in the region right now if you would put it in the context of the you know the larger subject of the panel
1: oh, our, our, our interests are what they've always been we want to uh... we want uh, to stop iran from getting a nuclear weapon we want to counter uh... uh terrorist organizations of global uh, of global reach we want to stop uh... proliferation um, we want to make sure that there's a free flow of oil at uh... at reasonable prices we want to support israel and uh... Uh, and, and 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 so on. If you look at it in terms of of Syria, you can't solve Syria without Sunni allies. The idea the idea that we're going to reach out the idea that the Assad regime, or Iran, or any of their proxies, Hezbollah, or the uh, uh, Iraqi militias that Iran is deploying to to Syria, are going to are going to uh, to have a political profile that is acceptable either to the Sunnis on the ground in Syria or to the, um, or to the Sunni states of the region is completely fanciful. So the, uh, let's call it the, the pickering Lures crocker proposal, uh, which I actually believe is pretty much the way the administration sees it, but let's just call it the Pickering proposal. The Pickering proposal suggests that that, that, that constellation of forces can actually solve the problem in Syria. It can't. The problem of jihadistan in both Iraq and, and in Syria is a problem of creating a new Sunni order. To do that, we have to have Sunni allies. We have to have Sunni allies on the ground, and we have to have Sunni allies uh, r- regionally. As long as we are perceived as uh, following a policy that is supportive, whether intentionally or unintentionally, of Iran and its allies, those Sunnis are not going to work with us. So we're not going to solve the problem. So regardless of whether I think um, you know, Iran is the most evil organization or, or, or state in the region, regardless of what I think about the extremist Wahhabism in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia, we can't solve our problem unless we work with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Sunnis, therefore we have to be aware of this big divide between Iran and everybody else in the region and we have to pick a side. We don't have to go whole hog on the other side, but we have to pick a side. Well,
0: let me ask. Why, why do we I'll, – I'll play devil's advocate a bit here. Why do we have to play, pick a side? The United, States is, the United States is still the regional hegemon. The United States is still the only superpower. Why can't we work to in different ways? It seems as though the administration has talked about trying to balance uh, our Gulf Arab allies against Iran. Why can't we balance them off each other?
1: Because it doesn't work. It, does, it doesn't work, and we're seeing how, and we're seeing how it doesn't work. Um, a number of us, from moment one, said this problem in Syria is going to metastasize. It's going to go beyond Syria's borders. It's going to destabilize the region. Um, frankly, I was laughed at when when <laughs> uh, when uh, when, uh, when I said that. So I'm laughing now. <laughs> right? But uh, but it doesn't do much good to laugh because we still we still have this problem, and it's going to get bigger. Right? We we're at the, we're at the stage now where it is almost threatening free flow of oil at, re- at, uh, at, at reasonable prices. Uh, it's uh, where the, 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 oil, the, the Iraqi production is, uh, is, is threatened by the growth, growth of, uh, of ISIS. It's just a matter of time before Jordan beca- uh, go- gets in the crosshairs. And Jordan can get in the crosshairs of both players. I, I agree totally with what Brian said before about the fact that um, Iran is not the implacable enemy of ISIS, and if you look at the whole history of Al Qaeda in Iraq, there's a there's a long history of, of Syria and Iran at you know playing footsie, if not actually tactically supporting Al Qaeda when it served their uh, when it when it uh, w- when it served their interests. So uh, a country like Jordan could come under fire from uh, from ISIS and like-minded groups. A country like Jordan could come under fire from uh, from uh, from Iran and Hezbollah if they decided that they that it was in their interest to destabilize the uh, the Saudi U.S. Uh, system further. Um, uh, I don't think this. I don't think us sitting back and saying let's let ISIS fight Iran. This is the this is the Sarah Palin strategy, <laughs> right? Sarah, Sarah Palin said let Allah sort them out, right? And that and uh, President Obama has been following the Sarah Palin program, uh, but he, he has not used that formulation, which is more than, a, the, more than just a whiff of, of, of anti-Muslim feeling about it. But that's basically what the, what the program has been. And I, I see no sign that it works in any way. The two, the, the two are getting stronger. They are two sides of the same coin.
0: Brian, you wanted to?
1: Uh, how Michael's...
3: Uh, respond to your question in terms of interests, I don't have a broad disagreement with it. I actually think there's a consensus there about uh, uh, stopping another attack from a terrorist group, stopping Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, uh, the free flow of oil, protecting allies, and things like this. The the problem I have with it is that it seems uh, a little formulaic and stuck in the past. And um, perhaps, and just to try to widen the lens a little bit, the way I see what's going on right now, not only the Arab uprisings, but all of these fights and the vicious civil war in Syria, is in a broader stream of history, uh, maybe fifty or sixty years. And part of, you know, if you look at the last thirty years of U.S. engagement in the region, and we, and many of you have served uh, in, in distinguished capacities in that, that we've actually engaged much more deeply uh, since the nineteen eighties in the region, um, and the region itself is at this pivotal transition point. Uh, Some of it – I think most of it, again, is organic and from within. Um, You look at the demographic bubble, the social and political pressures, and Michael used to uh, to write about this a lot in terms of what is the central threat in the previous decade and the central challenge. I think that's still the case. And call me a liberal neocon or things like this, but the fight – I'm going to use the F word for uh, for C-SPAN viewers – fascism. And, and freedom, uh, two F words. Um, it's, it's, it's a broader uh, landscape, which I think is very important to keep in mind in, in sort of our strategic and largely also tactical discussions about different pieces of the problem we have right now. It, it, my hope for the longer term, we have an interest, I think, to see this region to define it. I would define it as a region that's much more cohesive and integrated with itself and integrated with the rest of the world <laughs> uh, that may be too idealistic at this point. It seems such a glim notion. But to be able to achieve that, it's got to move beyond just simply what do we do in terms of security steps or in terms of economic assistance. It has to have this component of moral values and ideas. Does anyone remember the battle of ideas that people talked about after 9-11, which I thought was a, a big wake-up call? To me, the broader trajectory of the fight inside uh, of this region, and we can play a role, but I think we've largely been bystanders to it over the last two or three years, is this fight of what we stand for versus what others uh, say that they stand for. It touches upon faith, religion, and power in ways that I think our security class, and we just don't want to listen to it, Um, but I think it matters quite a lot. The struggle for decency and freedom in Egypt is ongoing right now, and it's much more complicated than I think the top lines have been uh, presented since since last year's ouster of Morsi. So th- the, that's the longer struggles that I, I, I would hope that, that that's not too idealistic of a vision. I worry. I have a lot of worries about how President Obama approaches this uh, as an analyst. But if you look at his interview with Tom Friedman, the thing that perked my ears up, that I don't think people commented on, was his notion that you've got a Sunni majority that feels disconnected from the global economy. Uh, so as a guy who wrote a book called The Prosperity Agenda, I believe the figment of that. I think that's right. There, it is about people feeling like they have security and a job and things like that, but it's incomplete, is my main point, uh, because it's got to include the other aspects of basic freedom and human rights and dignity, which – are, again, so hard to talk about right now. When you see ISIS, you see, you see Iran and, and other things. Mm. But it's in that broader context that I think we approach the challenge of the Soviet Union, uh, Latin America, Eastern Europe, that really is missing from um, this discussion, our, our discussion. Again, and it seems a bit far, but if you don't have that vision of where you want to go, which, which you're right, it should be about interests first and foremost. But if that interest is devoid of our sense of values that we need to promote – then I think we're just fighting a losing battle in the long run.
0: Huh. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, between Brian and Halal, I think that you've both put together the – you've both described American foreign policy the way it's been for a long time. It's a combination of values and interest, and it's what makes us, uh, what makes us rather rare, if not unique, in the world like that. Halal, yeah. I'm going to ask and, and, and see if I you'd p- like to respond to that. And, and then I, and b- before too long, we're probably yeah. going to open it up for a few questions, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what goes.
2: Yeah, I, I want to observe that uh what what Brian just said um, look we our deepest engagement in the region came more or less following uh, seventy nine and the Iranian revolution, and if you look at what the region was and what we were doing, the region was a dysfunctional mess, <coughs> eight years of a war between in, in Iran and Iraq, which managed to move the border, I think centimeters and millions of people dead or, or wounded, uh, which led to the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam hussein and what we have tried to do is to deal with with that dysfunction um, um, with some uh, sometimes with more success sometimes with less success uh, what we have been doing I think for the last five years is uh, something different it has been to say look we can um, let the region sort itself out, and um, and it's pr- and the principles of that you know uh, how that's conceived of may vary, but that's what I think uh, was in mind in the administration. And it, as I believe Fred Hyatt put it uh, uh, a few uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was an interesting experiment. The experiment that experiment hasn't worked, and I think. Uh, it 's fine to have you know a vision f- for the future. The question is what to do about it now, and what has worked for us when it has worked is what Michael suggests that we We have to see we have friends and we have enemies and that um, Maybe if we get to a point where our our friends are um, actually feeling um, empowered, confident successful, then we can uh, uh, figure out um, how we can draw. Uh, the enemies into that sort of uh, compact. Mm -hmm. Um, For the moment, it seems to me, and I just want to end on the Sunni point, Um, right now the problem is, uh, that's an interesting way of stating that we need a new Sunni order. The difficulty is right now that the Islamic State lays claim to be that new order. And what's really frightening about it is not so much simply the terrorism, at the fact that a lot of people are beginning to think that's true, mm-hmm. um, and in their own way welcome it because it's successful, and as much as they uh, things around the edges they don't like, maybe crucifixions and beheadings <laughs> are a little bit too excessive. But this is this is what where Sun- the Sunni world is at is a feeling that people are coming to have.
0: Um, Mike, did you want to? Uh uh,
1: just a uh, just a quick response uh, to Brian I I totally agree with what you say in the abstract I I like it when we are a big muscular power with a uh, with a with a very idealistic vision um I noted though that the American public um, uh is supportive of the president when he says that we need to uh we need to reduce our yeah. uh we need to reduce our profile uh, internationally and I think that that kind of uh big vision um is not really um, practical at the moment. I would love to come back. But uh, what we do have at the moment in, in Syria, uh, upwards of 7 million, maybe even more, people displaced. Um, uh, at least 200,000 killed. Uh, the, the regime dropping barrel bombs on, on, uh, uh, on, on bakeries and uh, uh, torturing children and, and so forth. And, and the United States absent from that fight. And not, not uh, you know, every now and then we witness... We say, oh, it's really horrible what's happening, and we condemn, and we, we, we send tweets from the Security Council about how bad the Assad regime is. But we don't do anything about it, and, um, and that's the thing that troubles me most at this point.
0: Um, Mike, thanks very much. I, I believe I am going to open it up to questions right now.
2: <laughs> you would know. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, let, let me look inside my head. Yes, I, I think I'm going to do that. Um, we have a gentleman over here. If you can just wait for one second for the microphone. I'm going to, um, this is what I'm going to ask for. When you get the microphone, when you get the conch shell, uh, if you would stand up and identify yourself and make it a question very quickly. If your comment lasts any more than 45 seconds, I'm going to come down and take the conch away from you and give it to someone else.
4: Michael Schrake with MIT, and Mr. Duran, you spoke at MIT, and you're entitled to say I told you so about the regionalization of this issue. The question I have is, We're talking about strategy, and I hope that you're about to tell me that I'm completely wrong. But I listen to people who listen to the Obama administration, the president and the secretary of state, and they say that the president and the secretary of state are not credible. That is to say, Israelis and Jordanians simply do not believe what the president and the administration promise. So is it a useful conversation to talk about strategic aspirations when people don't believe what it is you say you are going to do. And this ironically began with your points, the both of your points about the administration has a de facto policy of alliance with Iran, but it just doesn't want to discuss it with anyone.
0: Who would like to, uh, Mike, do you want to start with that? Yeah, sure. Would you like to, okay. Uh,
1: well, uh, yeah, there is a, there's a huge credibility problem. And, and in my analysis, it begins with the Iran issue. We cut a deal we, we, we don't like to talk about this. All of our allies don't want to talk about it because it's kind of rude. And uh, But we, we, the United States, cut a deal, or the Obama administration, cut a deal with Iran behind the backs of, of, of our allies. And we sprung it on the Israelis. We sprung it on the Saudis. Um, and we did that before the election of, of, uh, uh, of Rouhani. And that, that, that damages credibility. W- what damages credibility, too, is our Syria policy, where uh, I call it the Syria two-step, which is – uh, basically, every time Syria gets on the news uh, in, in the news cycle, we come up with an initiative that looks like we 're going to do something about the Syria problem, um, and then we don't follow through on it. The, the most obvious example being the, the strikes on Syria, the, the, the proposed strikes last, uh, last September. The latest example is the president's speech at uh, West Point, where he laid out this 500 million dollars for the Syrian opposition. Uh, but then when you start looking into the details, you see that, well, the $500 million isn't going to get appropriated till December, and then the program for actually helping the Syrian opposition won't be up and running until January, February, and then the first guys who will actually be fielded with American training and weapons will be about a year after that. So we're talking about two years down the line. It's a nothing burger dressed up as uh, helping the Syrian op- uh, opposition. So policies like that will lose credibility for sure. But we're, we are the United States. I mean, we have, we have enormous resources and power. And if we just start doing stuff, people have to listen to us. Well, well I'm, uh, sorry, right,
0: I, I just want to ask uh, uh, Brian uh, – You can, but, but Brian, because I think this also comes back to um, a question I wanted to ask you. When you said it might be too late right now to do much, uh, to do much with the Syrian opposition, well, why? I mean, this is the United States – we can. We stepped in right now into, uh, into Iraq in a limited fashion. Okay. Why is it too late? And doesn't that affect American credibility? If we say, look, it's too late for us. We know we're a superpower. We know we've been carrying the ball in the region for a long time. But suck it up.
3: Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll amend that statement if I said that because I don't think it's ever too late given our considerable mm-hmm. powers. Um, and again, we have unrivaled military and intelligence capabilities that we need to use judiciously. I think the challenge I was trying to articulate was that it, it perhaps may be true that had we intervened in 2012 or 2013 with a much more concerted effort, because we did start some sort of covert action, I believe, at least 18 months ago or beyond, um, and I think it was very, very limited. So uh, I, I don't think it's ever too late. On the credibility issue, I don't uh, – sir, I don't actually know how to answer your question, I, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to be glib here. Like when I go on MSNBC – or or Fox News, I often get this sort of, like, people say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I go to Israel quite Different a lot. Different people say yeah, on each station, I, I go to of Israel course. quite a lot. I've, I've been in Jordan recently uh, quite a lot, too. Um, I, I think credibility is an issue. I'll agree with Michael. Uh, the, uh, the red line issue, and I've written about this, really was a challenge um, and, and presented um, a difficulty. If I could just respond, though, is I think – in addition to credibility, which uh, is important, can often be, uh, is very important, I think there's an efficacy challenge, too, as well. Um, effectiveness. And it's it's not only, again, I'm, I'm trying to be even-handed, but I do believe this is true, is that I think this perception has lasted for a while in the Middle East, that the Bush administration stated we were going to do X, Y, and Z in the global arena, and when that did not happen, um, that creates a challenge of people just, it leaves an impression that you're not, you can't do what you say you want to do. Um, uh, you know, and, and it, it, there's often muddled signals. Like, I, we haven't talked about sort of Hamas and its rise and what I thought was a bad mistake in 2006 in their elections and what the Bush administration did at that point in their decisions. But the broader point I want to make is that I, I, I fear, I, it, given all of our power, and we are still very powerful in the region and in the world quite often we have our leaders, whether it's President Obama or President Bush, state we're going to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to arrest the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan. We're going to uh, stop North Korea from getting a nuclear weapon and things like this. And then when we don't achieve that, um, that creates, I think, a bigger problem of people look at you and say, you can't even say, you know, and that I think contributes to credibility. You can't even get done what you said you want to get done. And I'm suggesting that that spans a couple of Presidencies here. I'd also suggest, too, not that some sort of kumbaya message here, but I do think um, that if we actually got sort of our act together, and I've been involved with various initiatives with AEI, uh, other, you know, I come from the center left, but I'm an internationalist. And I worry what Michael said is spot on is that the architecture for U.S. engagement, the political support for it, I think is much lower at the popular levels. It certainly was very high post 9 11 and I think squandered a bit, and then now we're leaning back more than I wish we would lean in. If there's a way we could on Syria, I don't think, sorry to go on here. I think there's a way for us uh, to think of a pathway forward. I I think the pathway forward on Iraq, (laughs) as, as funny as it sounds, seems clearer to me, because there is an Iraqi government, there's something to work with there. On Syria, I think there is a pathway. If President Obama is serious about this additional money, that he's uh, focused on, and I agree with what Michael said about the strategic communications of previous efforts. This sounds to me different, uh, talking to some friends in the administration. It sounds to me that it perhaps has legs. It also sounds to me that if you look at, like, Robert Menendez, Tim Kaine, and Democrats who want a more robust engagement in Syria, there's an architecture to make that happen here. So we should form a Syria... Uh, uh bipartisan Syria study work
2: group absolutely seriously uh, 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 b- but we l- should b- do it today and be done with our work tomorrow yeah or <laughs> but,
3: but you could do it this 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 month I mean I know there have been various initiatives um, um, USIP we've been involved with this. These quiet things can actually matter a lot in shaping the thinking of people. Look, I think it's good to have op-eds and free-flowing and criticism. Uh, I did it against President Bush. You'll do it against (laughs) President Obama. That's part of what our debate is all about. But it's sort of those quiet discussions of how do we actually marshal our resources together uh, in, in a much more focused way. Uh, could be helpful to these guys because, as you know, you served in the White House. Quite often you're clearing your inbox. You're not actually – you don't have the luxury of of, of thinking this longer game that you and I at a think tank and Hillel and all of us had the luxury to really think about.
0: Hillel, did you want to
3: –
2: Yeah. I, first, to answer, directly answer your question. Yes, we have a big credibility problem. And it, it, it's – but it's twofold. That we don't – Deliver on what we promise, but also that we don't see what they see. They, we don't see the, the the region as they see it, and so there's the, a deeper <coughs> fear that we, we just can't deliver on what they need because we just don't see it there, that way. I would say that at the moment, the only way to change that is for the administration to take some very dramatic action, which clearly marks a departure from what uh, their policy has been up till now, whether that's in Syria or in Iraq or both, uh, because probably both need to happen. But it, I agree, it's much easier to still to do something in Iraq, um, which would demonstrate to people, um, and I think would have to be a fairly uh, forceful action, which would demonstrate to people that we, we've re- the president has rethought what he thought and is really prepared to do things he wasn't prepared to do before. I would suggest that in, the sh- in the most immediate term, I mean, I'm tempted to say what it, it has to be in Syria because, I, I, as I said before, I don't think there's, there's a window maybe of a few months left, if that much, at this point. No, this uh, is, and, no. But in Iraq, I would say the, the, the clearest thing he can do right now is um, now that uh, there's been a, a rush to help the Kurds, is, Yep. Keep it going. Really keep it going, and uh, both because it's, it, it will be demonstrably different than the policy we've, we've been following, and because it will do some good. Brian just wanted
0: to... So
3: I wondered um, uh, if, if with Aleppo and what's happening in Aleppo, if mm-hmm. there's a focusing moment in the way that I think oh, last right. week with Erbil, there definitely was. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's mm-hmm. an opportunity there. Um, because it lo- and the point I'm making here is that Aleppo, the second largest city in uh, Syria, may fall uh, at some point. There's been a. To a, two sides, a, a, actually. Yeah, to two sides <laughs> in a grievous uh, assault. And, um, you know, we didn't even talk about things like uh, too much the Christian minorities and Yazidis and things like this who are being pinched by this bigger fight. But is there a moment um, with Aleppo, a focusing moment? Um, I tend to think that President Obama got out there. On our bill uh, in uh, on Iraq in ways that his own base maybe didn't like, uh, but I think was essential to do. I think perhaps there's a moment here as well, perhaps. But again, going back to here, how do you actually sell that um, and being clear? Because I think the administration needs to be clearer. And again, one other thing I would say is that the way they've talked about their actions in Iraq have been too limited. (coughs) Um, Not that we should go in in any sense, but like limited in the sense that defining what this threat actually is, the Islamic State. Brett uh, McGurk and a few others have talked about it, but I think hearing from the President about the nature of what we're dealing with in both Iraq and Syria I think is essential for building the case, again, and I'm not talking about another invade and occupy mission, but a very targeted uh, perhaps uh, use of support. Uh, for people to stop from Aleppo from falling to either
0: the regime of the uh, you mean like taking the Syrian air force, destroying the Syrian air force on the ground? I honestly, the- I,
3: I honestly as an analyst, have not mm. thought that through uh, uh, carefully. You'd have to talk to people like and people who are serving, right. like Dempsey, who have been, has been criticized by people in Congress, rightly or wrongly so. But you'd have to make a pragmatic case, and that's the thing. You know, some people have told me who work with this president. You know, he's not squeamish about force. He, his problem is the then what questions of you know he's very pragmatic in that sense. When people uh, the the don't do stupid stuff, which has been bandied about, um, I think most Americans actually don't don't mind that as a principle. It's not a strategy, as people have pointed out. Mm. Uh, but I think he would acknowledge that as well too.
0: Mm. Mike, were you gonna? Have your your – Looking like you have something to say. Uh,
1: actually, I, yeah, I, I wasn't intending. Surprisingly, to say it, but, no, I wasn't intending yeah. to say it, but I will. It, uh, Quoting Marx, <laughs> quote, we're going to quote Marx again. No, I'm going to quote. Uh, I'm gonna, this, gonna, this, gonna, this time, this time I'm Groucho, though. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm going to quote Eisenhower. Ah, my favorite right, right. Eisenhower quote. When when Eisenhower sent troops into Lebanon, he did it in in '58, right after the Iraqi regime fell, and he was afraid of a spread of revolution around the region, and uh, uh, the the government was weak and. Uh, they asked for help and he sent troops in. And he met with Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House. And, and Sam Rayburn said, Mr. President, um, uh, I'm concerned that this will end badly. Uh, I don't, I, I don't, uh, President Obama's then what question. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm concerned about Arab nationalism. I'm concerned about victory in Lebanon. I'm concerned about the Soviet Union. And, and the President said, oh, uh, this will end badly. I can assure you of that," uh, uh, he said. Uh, but the question is, does it end badly with us taking action, or does it end badly with us not taking action? And, and the most important thing is that we take action in order to send a message to all of our allies that we are willing to take action for them because they're really desperate uh, at the uh, at the moment. And that was a, a, that. That to me is is very interesting because. Eisenhower was, A, a guy who really understood uh, the use of force extremely well and its limitations, and, number two, is, is understood as being a guy who was very prudent and, and is, is reluctant it, to use force. As
0: taking action against ISIS, I mean, look, it's uh, I mean, the, the Sunni regimes are concerned about this. They're concerned about ISIS. Is that enough to say, no, the United States is serious. We're serious allies. We know you're worried about it. We know the Saudis are worried about it. We know the Emiratis. Everyone's worried about it. Is that enough?
1: ISIS and Iran. We have to do both.
0: Um, this gentleman up here, and again, if you would just wait for the microphone, and again, if you would ask it, uh, keep your question I'm, I'm extremely close. concise. Well, but they need I know you're, con- you're close, but oh, the TV you. audience is
4: far. Uh, you I'm, can stand <laughs> and identify yourself. I'm
0: a uh, Faisal writer from Iraq. Mm-hmm. I have a question about credibility and allies. I mean, how can U.S. gain credibility when it has Saudi Arabia and Pakistan as allies, who are one of the main sponsors of terrorism in the world? <laughs>
1: This is not why we love them. Oh.
0: <laughs> um, sorry, that that was that, that, well, that, Do we want? I mean, yeah, that is kind of in, that, in the same that, line as credibility. But if you want to go I, I, ahead, so. you no. Know,
1: just uh, they they have traditionally been our allies, and there's a, there's a, I, I don't agree with you that uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the biggest uh, uh, supporters of terrorism around the uh, around the world. There's a qualitative difference between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran has a Quds force. Which goes around, uh, which goes around undermining governments ar- ar- around the region. Saudi Arabia has nothing like the Kuds force. There's no figure like Qasem Soleimani um, in, in in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is basically a, a status quo power that wants everything to be uh, to be quiet. Iran is dedicated to overturning the regional the regional order. That's that's how I see it.
3: If I, if I could add, though, I mean uh, your point is very important in what I was trying to get at and understanding this conception of friends and enemies because uh, – and I was on a panel at the FDD, Foundation for Defensive Democracy, recently. They put out a monograph on frenemies, um, those uh, groups that are like that. And that's where I think, again, inhibits strategic thinking to think about these, these, these countries in this way. But countries like Saudi Arabia are punching uh, with their resources in the region, and you know this. And it's, and it's not only the security threats that they pose in terms of types of actors And maybe it's not the Saudi government, maybe Saudi private individuals. Um, Cutting that off should be part of our discussion. It is. One of these tools that the Bush administration did a good job at honing, and Wanzerati was part of this. But the Treasury, cutting off those financial networks, it's incomplete on this front, uh, completely incomplete. Like, we've gotten really good with Iran, North Korea, a bit on Russia. Um, That's a centerpiece of the struggle is to hit them where it hurts. And, again, that that involves uh, a way of strategic engagement that uh, says, okay, we'll work with you, especially those pragmatists in Saudi Arabia who have said we have a problem here. Uh, We're going to go after al-Qaeda. But the main point is that these countries are not monolithic. They're divided. There's a fight within them as well, and we need to actually be cognizant of that while we're uh, building partnerships or making deals with them.
1: Just one more point, too, which is that um, there, are, there, are nasty, there are nasty currents coming out of the, the Gulf and coming out of the, the, the Sunni powers in, in the Gulf. And um, I, I would say that the best way that the United States can counter those is by having a vision of regional order uh, and taking the lead in establishing it so that they're not – so that the, the Saudis and the Qataris and everybody else – Aren't pushed back on their own resources. They don't have an expeditionary military that they can send to Syria. So they use the tools that they have at uh, at their disposal, um, which uh, which often are not in our interest either.
0: We have time. Oh, for I just Okay, hello. To...
2: Um, on Pakistan, I just want to refer you to the works of uh, uh, my colleague, Ambassador Hussein Haqqani. Uh, most, his most recent book, "Magnificent Delusions," about the relation. The long uh, relationship with, between the U.S. and Pakistan, and I think you would find it very helpful in answering your question.
0: Thanks. Um, if uh, this gentleman here, if you can hold on just one second,
2: ah, there's the microphone. The,
5: thank you very much, uh, Mohammed Kurdar. I just wanted to follow up on this idea that you were talking about, Brian, about <laughs> sort of marshaling. Ideas together, so we address these these and i'm going to ask you to go very quickly
0: okay, because very quickly. we're running out of time. so in
5: particular, two challenges in addressing these broader issues that I think have been threaded throughout the panel. Um, the first one being this issue of the non state actor um, it's been talked about ad nauseum, but i'm still not convinced that we really have a, a clear idea of how do we strategically engage with non state actors so one of the differences I think between uh, the the decision making of, of the airstrikes with regard again to please the versus Syria. Is you know the sort of semi-state uh, actor status of, of the KRG. The second thing is um, how do we define what our what our priorities, our interests are? I couldn't help but notice that the list that you, that you gave, Michael, was was mostly negative and status quo. Sort of, and, and not that I disagree with it, but you know, countering terrorism, preventing uh, a nuclear Iran, support, continuing our support for our allies, um, and the free flow of oil, as opposed to thinking about what do we want it to look okay. like it's a side? So thank
0: thanks. You. Brian, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to start off with this, and I'm going to ask you to keep it as concise as possible. Yeah, it's,
3: I mean, it's a real tough question sorry. with non-state actors because uh, there's a range of them. There's obviously the most dangerous terrorist groups, and I think some of these people, y- you can't deal with them. You, you just have to You look at how they're acting, and you just have to go after them and kill them. Um, you need to kill their ideas, though. That's the most important thing is that I think Whatever we've done over the last 10 or 12 years, uh, I think we've done a much better job in targeting these individuals, but we haven't yet, going back to this battle of ideas, what should befuddle all of us is why we're still in this uh, state. After everything that President Bush did, President Obama did, whether it's counterinsurgency, light footprint CT, this problem that is political, social, and demographic, Mm -hmm. and uh, these groups like Islamic State, are tapping into something that it's hard for us as analysts to understand. To defeat it, we actually need to go after it militarily, but we need to also then figure out how these societies can actually build a much more uh, decent sort of uh, respect for basic rights. Without that, we're just going to continually go through this cycle when you take into account these demographic factors I keep highlighting.
0: That's, uh, actually, I'm, we're, we're going to close on that, and I think that's actually really – I'm sorry about that, I, but I think that's really actually a wonderful place – to, uh, to end that. It's not just a military engagement, but it is something that we've been talking about for the last decade, a, uh, a battle of ideas, and it probably needs to be re-engaged. And it's a very interesting question. Why? Why is this still going on? Why do we still have the problem of sub-state actors, non-state actors? Uh, we'll reconvene at some point to ask those questions. In the meantime, <laughs> I wanted to thank you very much for being here, and thanks again to our C-SPAN audience. Have a wonderful <laughs> afternoon and a lovely rest of your summer.